As you know, we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we left off last time at the almost to the end of Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. So we're going to continue where we left off in Mark chapter 14, and we're going to read from verse 27 through to verse 31. Let's all stand to hear God's word. Mark 14, verse 27 to 31, Peter's denial is predicted by Jesus. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they also were all saying the same thing. Please be seated. Just before we consider those words, let's come to God in prayer. Father, we thank you for the gospel that we can read, that we can understand because we're your people. And that we can have applied to our lives because we have your Holy Spirit within our lives, within our hearts. Lord, again, this morning, as a result of all these truths, we pray that you will open these words to our hearts, that we will understand, that we will learn, that we will grow, that we will be transformed, literally transformed inwardly by the power of your Holy Spirit, to be able to worship you as a result of that, more meaningfully and in the way that we should worship you as our Lord and our God. And I pray that you'll open my mouth to speak your word for your glory. Amen. As I said, last time we uh, ended Mark chapter 14 verse 26 on the Thursday evening of the last week of Jesus' life. And on that Thursday evening he celebrated the final Passover with his disciples. That event began about sundown, it didn't end till after midnight. So Jesus, he spent around six hours that Thursday night celebrating, as I say, first of all the last Passover... But then he ended that Passover, and thus ending all Passovers for all time, by introducing the First Communion. And in and around that, all sorts of important events took place. He, he taught his disciples extensively, giving them some very important promises. All that is laid out in John's Gospel, starting in chapter 13 and running through to chapter 16. And then at the end of that evening, he closed out the evening with the great high priestly prayer, as recorded in John chapter 17. And when the evening was finally done, they sang a hymn, Psalm 136 that would have been, and then they left the upper room. We pick up the account at that very moment here in verse 27. So as they're leaving the upper room, Jesus says, You'll all fall away, because it's written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And it was then that we see that Peter said, well, no, even though all may fall, I will not. And Jesus replies, truly I say to you, this very night, before a rooster crows, you yourself will deny me three times. It's amazing how people will try to disagree and argue against God, because that's really what Peter's doing here. He's disagreeing with Jesus. He said, no, Jesus, you're wrong. He's arguing against God. 
And he keeps insisting, he said, no, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. No, Jesus, you're wrong. I mean, that's pretty bold when you think about it. You're wrong, Jesus. And they all, it says, all the others kept saying the same thing. That's an insight, really, into the weakness of the followers. And these are the closest, these are the, the, the nearest to Jesus, the followers of Jesus. And remember that Jesus said, recorded in Mark chapter 8 verse 38, that whoever is ashamed of me and my words, in other words all that he says, all that's recorded in the Bible, he will be ashamed of them. So he's warned the disciples about this, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of you. And certainly Judas falls into that category, who were permanently and terminally ashamed of him and his words. Uh, Jesus says that only the 11 um, disciples are truly saved. One of them, Judas, is lost. And if you have any doubt as to the fact that Judas wasn't saved, uh, consider the ominous words of Acts chapter 1 verse 25. Judas, it says in Acts 1 verse 25, turned aside to go to his own place. Not only did Judas go to hell, but it's referred to ominously as his own place. After that, the fact that Judas was entered into by Satan, Luke chapter 22 verse 3. That's not possible if he would have been a genuine Christian. And also Luke 6 verse 70, Jesus called him a devil. And very ominously, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 26 verse 24, it would have been better for Judas if he hadn't been born. Jesus also said in John 17 verse 12 that Judas was bound to be lost. Now another authorised version in uh, Matthew chapter 27 verse 3 says that Judas repented. That's a, an unfortunate translation because the Greek word there is not metaneo, which is the Greek word for repent. The Greek word there in Matthew 27 verse 3 is metamelomai, which means to feel sorry. There's a difference, a huge difference. A better translation in the English would be remorse. And sadly... When it comes to Judas, that was as far as it goes. He did not repent. Remorse is not repentance. Remorse is a step towards repentance, but it is not repentance. But what about the other eleven? How different were they to Judas? I mean, they didn't betray Jesus. I mean, they certainly wouldn't sell Jesus. They wouldn't have turned him over. But they do certainly appear at this point to be ashamed to be identified with him. And before the evening, there's not one of them is more on display as being ashamed to be identified with Jesus Christ than Peter. Of course, it was different with Judas. I mean, the shame of Judas was the, the shame of unbelief. The shame of the eleven was the shame of weakness. The shame of Judas was irretrievable, without remedy. But the shame of the disciples was temporary. And it would eventually be turned to faith. We do see that later in Acts chapter 5 verse 45. They went on their way, that's the, the disciples, from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Later they were recovered. Judas on the other hand, he went out and he hanged himself. The disciples... They offered up their lives as martyrs and recovered from their temporary shame. The difference was that they belonged to the Lord. And the resources of the Lord were at their disposal. That's the difference between Judas and the other eleven. So what we learn here, it's not about the shame of Judas. It's not about a permanent damning shame. 
But what we learn here is about another sort of shame, the temporary shame from which the genuine Christian can recover. And it's an experience, if we're honest, that we can all face. There have been times when each of us has been ashamed to identify with Jesus Christ because perhaps we thought that it might bring about negative consequences. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, once said, if you have never been ashamed to openly proclaim the gospel, it is not because you're so courageous, it's because you probably don't understand the gospel. Because if you really proclaim the full gospel, all that the Bible teaches, you would have to confront the sinner in a way that will cause the sinner to reject what you say and you along with it. And that can drive us to silence. Martin Lloyd-Jones there saying, if you stay true to all that the Bible says, people will reject you. And that can make you silent. And that can make you ashamed to identify with the words of Jesus Christ. So it would be helpful for us to understand how it was that these men went through this experience of shame, but still came out bold in the end. But what really shines through, actually, this isn't really about the, the eleven, what really shines through is the majesty, the, the magnificence, the glory of the Son of God here. And we see this contrast between Jesus on the one hand and the eleven on the other. <clears throat> here in Mark chapter 14, verse 27 to 31, we get an example of human weakness by believers in Christ. Um, this is really a law for the disciples. But against that background you get this contrast, this very stark contrast. And what really comes through is the shining majesty of Jesus Christ himself. Now, this is a really important part of the Bible, as you know. In the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, if you total all the chapters together, um, and the verses that talk about Jesus' early life, from his birth to the time when he started his ministry, that you only get four chapters out of 89 chapters altogether. Four chapters up to his 30th year. After that you get other chapters detailing his ministry. But then, right at the end, just the last week, we get 29 chapters dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. And then we get 13 chapters just to the Friday, the very last day. So this is very important. Here in Mark 14 we're dealing with a lot of information. This is an important time. They've just had the Passover meal. It's a Thursday night. John 18 verse 1 says that Jesus then left with his disciples and he headed for the Mount of Olives. And as I say, starting here in verse 27, we get that incident. Uh, they've just left the upper room. They're on the way to the Mount of Olives. Now on the slope of the Mount of Olives, you'll know that there's a garden there called the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, there was an olive press there. This is where they're headed for ultimately. So Jesus, who's going to be crucified in a few hours, he leads them from the upper room, from Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives. They go out to the upper room, round about midnight, out of the temple gate, the eastern slope of the temple mount. They go down the slope, up into the Kidron Valley. They cross over the Kidron Brook, flowing with water at that time in the spring, but also... Very significantly, that brook would have been flowing with the blood of the lambs that are all being sacrificed in the temple that would come out of the temple, go into the brook and flow down. So they would cross this stream, they would make their way through, they'd see the houses of city all lit with candles. Some of them from Galilee would have been celebrating the Passover that night. Others would be celebrating it the next day. 
temple gates were opened at midnight to let any other pilgrims in for Passover on Friday. And as they made this walk, basically following the same route that David made when he was fleeing from the pursuit of his own son Absalom in 2 Samuel 15, they leave Jerusalem to find a very quiet, familiar place. But at that place they're about to have a confrontation with Jesus in which these 11 decide that they, oh yes, we've got the, the trust, we, you know, we've got the strength, we've got the courage, we can face this, we can do this. But he then says, no, you can't. He gives them the truth about what they will actually do. And in this confrontation we see the exposure of their weakness and at the same time, as I say, this contrast between Jesus and the majesty of him. The real focus is Jesus because the first thing that we see here is his knowledge contrasted with their ignorance. The twelve are ignorant. They don't know the future. They don't know what's coming. That is despite the fact that he has told them. He's explained it on a number of occasions. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be scourged, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be crucified and in three days I'll rise. He told them but they still didn't get it. They don't really accept it anyway. And Peter makes that very clear. No, you're wrong Jesus. So this fear was a result of their ignorance. They were full of fear, they were full of doubt and they become panicked. And this fear will cause them to flee. And this fear will even cause them to deny Jesus repeatedly as in the case of Peter. But in contrast to this ignorance of the twelve, we see this knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in verse 27, you will all fall away. They haven't fallen away, but he's saying it's going to happen. You will fall away. The Greek is scandalizo, which we get the word scandalized. Um, they will be scandalized. They will defect. That knowledge of what they will do indicates that Jesus had supernatural knowledge. He is God in the flesh. He knew that that's exactly what they were going to do. He didn't know it because of any information they gave. They gave him the opposite information. They, oh no, we won't. We're strong. We can do this. But he said, no, you will. You're going to fail. You're going to flee. He knew the moments ahead. He knew the hours ahead. He knew exactly what was going to happen that very night. He knew about the plot of the religious leaders, he knew about the Roman soldiers, the Sanhedrin, he knew about Judas, he told them this is all going to happen. And it was all known to him because he's God. It was also known to him because it was written. Any of the others should have known, not just because he told them, but because it's all written down in the Old Testament. And he knew that because he wrote the Old Testament. He even quotes just one example. He could have quoted many examples. And he quotes one specific example because it's very relevant to this particular time. He quotes Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7. And it says, written many hundreds of years before, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You see, Jesus knew the truth because he is the truth. And he knew the future because of the past. He knew what was coming. He knew everything. Zechariah says that God will strike the Messiah. Awake, O my sword, against my shepherd, God says. He's calling his own sword against his own shepherd. It's God who strikes the Messiah. It wasn't Judas, really, who led Jesus to the cross, although he played an important role. It wasn't the Sanhedrin. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't Pilate or Caiaphas or Herod. It was God. 
So Zechariah says that God himself will slay his own personal representative, his equal. And that tells you that Jesus Christ actually is God in the flesh as well, as a fact that this is going to happen. And it says, as a result of the shepherd being smitten by the father, the sheep will be scattered. And notice Zechariah 13 verse 7 ends, as God says, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. That's referring to the fact that God's going to allow the people to be persecuted for the purity of the church, for the purity of the gospel. There is coming a persecution. It came first to the apostles, then to the early church, and then it continues throughout history. The point, though, is that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew what was coming. He knew what was going to happen to the disciples, he knew what was going to happen to the nation, he knew the persecution that was going to follow, he knew that what Judas would do, the religious leaders. This is no mere man, this is the Messiah, this is God in the flesh. I mean these eleven, remember these are the best of humanity at that time, the most devout, the truest. These were true believers in Jesus Christ, they confessed him as Lord, as God. As Messiah, they'd been given salvation, but the truth was they were about to betray him. They were about to turn away from him. Not betray him in the same way that Judas did, but they were about to flee. And even deny him, in the case of Peter, vehemently. No one can know the future about God, apart from God I should say. No one can predict what's coming apart from God. And Jesus predicted what was coming. He knew everything. And, and he knew it, and he knew it all of his life, and he knew the pain that was coming. Imagine if, if we knew everything that was going to happen to us in our lifetime, we would be traumatised into paralysis. Any pain that we would ever face, uh, any hurt that we would ever suffer, how and when we would die a horrible death. If we knew that ahead of time, the knowledge would crush us. But Jesus knew ahead of time exactly what was going to happen to him. He knew every detail, he knew every move. So first of all we see his knowledge coming through contrasted with the ignorance of the disciples. The second thing we see is his courage. He says you will all fall away. Now the word he uses there literally means you were caught in, in a trap, in a, in a snare. It says in Proverbs 29 verse 25, the fear of man brings a snare. So Jesus is saying you're going to be trapped by your fear. You're going to end up being disloyal. You're going to be lured into the sin of unfaithfulness by the fear of persecution. You're going to leave me just exactly like Zechariah said that you would do. You're going to scatter. And that's exactly what happened. When the pressure was on, when Jesus was taken captive, the inseparable eleven were separated. Peter and John did follow, but at a safe distance. But the group eventually dissolved. That explains, uh, for example, the absence of Thomas on the Sunday night. It explains why you then see two disciples wandering off on the road to Emmaus. It explains why in Galilee Jesus appears, there's only seven at the lake, they're just all spread about. They were inseparable for three years, now they've scattered. And it was only sometime later that we read in Matthew 28 verse 16, for example, that all eleven of them minus Judas did eventually come back together and they were brought back together for his ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit. But on the day, on this day, they fragment, they scatter. And he says, you will all fall away because of me. Jesus meant there, but by being identified with him, that could be a threat to their lives. That would cause them to fear. That's why they fled. It was dangerous. 
to be associated with Jesus Christ. These days people ignore the Bible because they're worried that people might think bad of them. In, in, in these days, 2,000 years ago, you could be killed for staying true to what God says. And these disciples then knew that the close connection with Jesus could mean that they would be the next to die. And they were not, at this point, they were not willing to pay that price. They were not ready to give their lives. Matthew 26 verse 56 says, All this took place to fulfil the scriptures of the prophets. And all his disciples left him and they fled. They ran for their lives. They couldn't face the danger. They had shallow love in contrast to his perfect love. That night the price was just too high. So they fled. They were just too ashamed to be associated with him. They didn't have any courage. And there you see the contrast. The amazing courage of Jesus Christ. That's why in this passage we see him on display. It doesn't actually say it, but it's just so obvious. His courage is beyond any human. He knows about the hatred. He knows about the pain. He knows about the indignity. He knows about the betrayal. He knows he's going to be betrayed with a kiss. He knows he's going to die a cruel and horrific death on the cross. But he just goes straight to it resolutely. He's going to bear the sin of these very men who forsake him in this darkest hour. Men who not only scattered at the cross but fell asleep in his hour of darkness. So his knowledge is perfect set against their ignorance. His courage is magnificent set against their cowardice. He stands apart from the disciples totally. They were ashamed of him. Ashamed to be identified with him. And yet in Hebrews it says that he is not ashamed to call them and does his brothers and sisters. So they were ashamed of him. Amazingly he wasn't ashamed of them. Paul does rise above this in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. He says very significantly. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is a power of God under, unto salvation. And he says to Timothy. I'm not ashamed to suffer for Christ. So we see the, the ignorance of the disciples. They don't know what's coming. And we see their cowardice. They flee for their lives and against that we see the knowledge of Christ and his wondrous courage. Let's move on then, his power. After I've been raised I will go ahead of you to Galilee, he says in verse 28. He sees beyond the cross to the resurrection. That's another indicator of his omniscience. He knows he's going to die, he knows they're going to scatter. He also knows that he's going to rise again from the dead. It's recorded that he said it at least specifically three times already just in the Gospel of Mark. And he must have said it many, many times that are not recorded. He not only believed in his resurrection, he knew that it was going to happen. He knew that he had power over death. And he displayed that power himself just recently. Remember he just, not that long ago, raised Lazarus from the dead. But in contrast to that, the disciples were terrified of death. That's the problem, that's why they ran. Jesus had no fear of death, he looked death in the face and he walked right into it. The horror that came in the garden, uh, by the way, that wasn't a, a fear of death. The horror in the garden was the fear of bearing sin and separation of the Father. Um, he says in his ministry, John chapter 2 verse 19 to 21, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. He said that right at the very beginning. He says in John 6, and all that the Father gives to me will come and I will lose none of them but raise them up. He also said, because I live, you also will live. He said, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me will never die. He said that over and over again. So here he says, after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. I will lead you forward. And he makes a promise that he will bring them together. 
He personally promises and that's what he did. He got them together in the end. They were all together when he ascended back into heaven. They were all together in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came. He recovered them. He restored them. In other words, this is not a, an irredeemable kind of defection like Judas. This was not apostasy that we see with the twelve. This was a momentary failure, weak faith, weak love, cowardice that could be recovered. And Jesus recovered them all. So we see his knowledge against their ignorance. We see his courage against their cowardness. We see his power against their weakness. And then we see his humility. The fourth thing is his humility contrasted with their pride. Peter says, even though all may fall away, I won't. That's proud confidence. Very persistent pride. And it says persistent because in the upper room just a few hours ago, we read in John chapter 13 verse 36, Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, you will follow later. And what Jesus is saying there, I'm going to heaven, you're not going yet, but you will be going. And then, I remember this was a few hours before, Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you? I laid down my life for you. And Jesus says, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I say to you, a cock will not crow until you deny me three times. Jesus has said that to Peter a few hours earlier sitting at the table in the upper room and now he's saying it again on the Mount of Olives and Peter's making the same insistent claim even though they all may fall I won't he's very proud of him he's saying well actually he's really looking down on the others to, for a start well they might but I won't in other words Lord you're wrong he's disagreeing with God he's arguing against God's word and Jesus says truly I say to you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He gives them the same warning a second time. And Peter still doesn't accept it. We see in verse 31, he kept saying insistently, he just won't get it. He just doesn't agree with Jesus. Peter's stubborn rejection of Jesus' knowledge shows his own weakness and really reveals his pride. And the conversation got a little more extensive because Luke chapter 22 verse 31 and following says Simon Simon behold Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail and once you've turned again strengthen your brothers but Peter said Lord with you I'm ready to go to prison and to death and Jesus said I'm telling you Peter the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times you'll deny that you even know me and this is the third time that Jesus has told Peter that he would deny him on three occasions. And by the way, on those three occasions there were multiple denials. It wasn't just he denied him three times. Each time it was again and again and he kept on saying it. And Jesus even says, this is a severe trial, Peter. This is a satanic trial. Satan wants to sift you. Satan is in the business of trying to shatter saving faith. He can't. But that's what he's always trying to do. He needs permission actually to even test us. But Jesus gives him permission to test Peter. But the point is, that he says that when you recover, in other words, you're going to recover, you, you will be strong enough, you manage it, then you can strengthen others because you've been through it and you can strengthen others as they go through it too. And when Jesus says, Satan is desired to sift you would like wheat, he uses the plural, meaning not just you, Peter, all of you, all eleven, you're all going to be sifted. But Peter 
thought he was strong. Peter and the others thought that they knew better than Jesus. Peter even thought that he was a match for Satan. More than a match. And by the way, that's ridiculous when you remember that Peter had already been tempted by Satan and Satan had already won by getting him to speak out against Jesus. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. And Peter said, no, you're not, you're wrong. Again, disagreeing with God's word. And Jesus said, get behind him, he's Satan. So it's not like Peter's managed before. He's already failed. He's already been beaten by Satan. Satan had already entered into Judas. John 13, verse 27. Now he wants to try and get Peter. He can't enter into Peter, but he wants to pull him down. And he manages. How could they all be so proud? Peter wasn't alone, it says, verse 31, they were all saying the same thing. They all lived under this false illusion about their own spiritual strength. Yeah, I'm fine. They even contradict Jesus himself, who said that they would do it. They denied it. Jesus, you're wrong. And Peter sinned again, secondly, by claiming to be really stronger than the rest. Well, the rest might do it, but I won't. He was trusting in his own strength. And that very night... Peter would disown Jesus Christ and he'd even do it with a curse and an oath. He really goes right down as far as it's possible to go. He says, I don't even know who Jesus is. I don't know him. That's as bad as it gets. He denies even knowing who Jesus is, let alone, oh yeah, I'm one of, the, one of them, I'm, I'm, I'm a follower. Oh no, I've never heard it, I don't know who Jesus is. And he'd do it with the same vehemence. And the same emphatic attitude that displays here by saying, oh no, I would never do that. Now the Jewish people did, divided their uh, night time into four segments. Uh, from six in the evening till six in the morning they called the night. And the first part of that was the evening from six to nine. Then you got nine till twelve was midnight. And then from twelve to three was rooster crow. They called that rooster crow. And then three to six you get the morning. And Jesus, before that time, before the rooster crows... You will have denied me three times. And when Peter heard that rooster crowing, what did he do? Matthew and Luke tells us he went out and he wept bitterly. I mean, he knew full well that he'd been so strong. Oh no, I would never do that. And he suddenly realises, actually, I'm wrong. Jesus is right. And look at what I've done. And they're all saying the same thing. They're also proud to a very very ugly degree so proud that they contradict Jesus so proud that they overestimate their own spiritual strength but against that ugly pride is the amazing humility of Jesus who goes to the cross to die for these men who are basically rejecting him forsaken by them hated by his own nation rejected in magnificent humility he goes to the cross against the contrast of the boastful pride of the apostles. Of course, unlike Judas, this was not a terminal defection. They were restored. They were restored after the resurrection. They collected together, finally, in Galilee. They were all there when Jesus ascended, as I say. All there on the day of Pentecost. And then in Acts 5, verse 41, they were all willing to suffer and even be killed. So what made the difference? Why is it that Judas just defected permanently, but these... 11, even though that they pretty much rejected Jesus, pretty much disowned him, pretty much fled when he was going to the cross, pretty much even denied even knowing him, what made the difference for them to come back again and be restored? Well, we see the difference in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. What made the difference 
was the coming of the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And after the Holy Spirit came, they were never ever ashamed of Jesus again. Because it wasn't their strength. It was God's strength. They didn't have the strength. That's obvious. Very, very clear. And Peter goes, as I say, as low as it's possible to get in Peter's strength. But when they've got God's strength, there's a different case altogether. They went out. They boldly preached. Whatever the consequences. They were willing to die. And they did die. Peter was crucified upside down. All the others were martyred apart from John who was exiled to Patmos and he died as an exile there again for the same cause of Christ. And all throughout history this is what believers have done. They've been faithful to the end. Not because of their own strength but because of the strength of Jesus within them through the Holy Spirit. The history of martyrdom starts with these men. You know in Islam if your life is threatened their teaching says you can lie about being a Muslim. In their teaching you can lie about anything really. You can lie for two main reasons. You can lie to protect your life and you can lie to advance the cause of Islam. That's in their writing. That's different to the Christian testimony. Genuine Christians tell the truth even if it means death. But how are we empowered to such strength? How are we empowered to such resolve? How are we empowered to such courage? It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not about how powerful you are, because you will fail. I will fail. We will fail. But, it's the power of the Holy Spirit within you. And you might say, well I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could stand up like Peter eventually did and, and the others. But Jesus actually prayed for you. He says in John 17 verse 15, I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, but I ask that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is saying there, don't, you know, keep them in the world. The world will make them suffer. It will be difficult to protect them. You are protected. If you're a genuine Christian, you're protected from ultimate defection by the will of Jesus, by the will of God, who in his intercessory prayer prays for you. And he says nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nobody can pluck them out of my hand. That shows you that Judas was lost because he was plucked out of his hand. He, he was never in his hand. But nobody can pluck you out of his hand. Therefore, if you ever face the kind of thing that these men face, I can promise you, confident in the prayers of Jesus, that in that hour you will not fail. I mean, you may fail at times, but you will not give up. You may doubt God's word at times, but not permanently. And that's because of the Holy Spirit. If you're a genuine Christian, like these eleven, unlike Judas, God's Holy Spirit lives within you. And when you doubt anything that God says, the Holy Spirit will cause you to repent. It may take time, but you will change. However, if anyone claiming to be a Christian continually and deliberately ignores or disagrees with God's word and turns away from him, that's really evidence, if that's permanent, that the Holy Spirit is not in them. And if the Holy Spirit is not in you, you're not a Christian. That was the difference between Judas and the eleven. They couldn't fail. It was impossible for them to fail permanently because they were God's people. And God gave them the strength. God protected them and nobody could pluck them out of his hand. Let's come to God in prayer.
Father we thank you for this amazing example of how weak we all are even Peter the the closest the so called strongest the so called leader went so far as to deny that he even knew who Jesus was and yet we can't look down on him because we would have done the same in our own strength but we know Lord that we won't because that was before Peter had the Holy Spirit within him and we know that we have your Holy Spirit within us and we know that yes we will fail from time to time yes we may be scared to, to proclaim the truth we may back down but it won't be permanent and your Holy Spirit will badger us and, and, and tell us that we shouldn't have done that and eventually we will repent of it and we will come back to you again and we thank you Lord we thank you for the security that we have knowing that we're your people and no matter how far we fall sometimes we will always be your people and we will always get back up again and we will always be in your care thank you father amen